This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Speak truth. Speak truth. We start. This is the kingdom. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. But you know good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me. And the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right rep, Christopher Butler. Now, Chris, we're coming off of a weekend where the Chicago Bears lost. Now, we're both Chicago Bears fans. The difference between me and you, I think, is the reasonableness or the delirium with which we view the team assured me a couple episodes ago that they had fixed their offensive line, uh, that they were, you know, that they were ready to go, that they were a great team. And the game that I watched didn't display that. Uh, I hope there weren't a whole lot of people out there listening to us in the audience that got their hopes up based on your ridiculous commentary. What do you have to say in defense of yourself after seeing uh, this team play pretty poorly? Well, we're... uh... We're right at 500, uh, so you know there's still a lot of season left. It's a it's a difficult week for uh, not only for Bears fans, but obviously a proper Bears fan uh, is an anti-Packers fan, um, and so Packer week for the for the last seven years has been uh, a tough time. But you know, it's a lot of football left to play. There is a lot of football left to play. And again, my biggest worry coming into this season was that they just weren't protecting my man. I like Justin Fields. I actually got to speak at a conference where Justin Fields was there. Justin Fields is actually my 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 son's favorite player. Uh, and I just don't think that uh, the Bears have done enough to protect him. But we shall find out. We shall see. The the year they, is young. I do know more. The guys up. They're going to keep playing together. You know, they're going to get better throughout the season. That's real. That's real. Um, I will say that my Vanderbilt Commodores got another win, you know, so we're, we're starting the season off right. Got a bigger game this weekend that we're going to need all of your prayers on. But uh, I still, you know, I still always keep hope alive. You know, you know, you know how we get down. But enough about the. Oh, one more thing I got to say about football before I move on, because somebody called this out on on Twitter and I do want to give it a shout out. The Buffalo Bills seem like the real deal. Now, we know that. um Michael Ware, who's a friend of ours, who's a former co-host on this show, is a huge Buffalo Bills fan. So we're going to give Michael a shout out. But that team looks like they are legit uh, and they're going to give some folks some headaches this year. They do look serious. And it is uh, it is good and right to shout out Michael's team. Uh, yeah, man. My, Michael's team. Michael is doing much better than we are at this moment. <laughs> But you, but you never know what can happen any given Sunday, man. Well, uh, as They'll always. In the Super Bowl. That's right. That's right. <laughs> As always, uh, we want to give a shout out to uh, our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. 
Uh, and you know, man, we we got we got some interesting things to talk about. Uh, there's been a lot, so much going on in politics. It was it was one of those episodes where it was hard to choose what exactly we wanted to talk about, but I think you're going to enjoy it. So grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Chris, the Bible spends a significant amount of time describing the life and times of leaders and their interactions with God. We see, quote unquote, good leaders. We see bad leaders. We see leaders who are sometimes good and sometimes bad. Leaders who serve and bless the people uh, they're leading and leaders who selfishly manipulate and exploit the people. Leaders who are self-sacrificial and leaders who gorge themselves at the expense of their constituency. All of these leaders in all these different categories, Chris, are imperfect. But insofar as they should be judged righteous or unrighteous, it's directly connected or directly a consequence of their willingness to follow God, to submit their authority to a higher authority, to realize that their leadership was subject to the sovereignty of God. So from the patriarchs to tribal leaders to judges like Deborah, monarchs like David, Saul and Jeroboam, prophets like Isaiah, Amos, and Jeremiah, and even infamous characters like Amaziah the priest, again, Saul, uh, Ahaz, and Jezebel. For better or worse, they were all leaders in their own right. And if we're going to say they were all leaders in their own right, we probably should define leadership. And so what, after all, is leadership? In my opinion, Chris, uh, leadership generally deals with influence. It's one's ability to persuade or control a group or groups of people. Uh, a good leader in their in their ability to influence provides vision. And we know that Psalm uh, twenty nine eighteen says where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, Chris, I was I was looking at this Forbes article and it had some really good quotes on leadership. And I'm going to read a few of those off uh, now. Napoleon Bonaparte once said that a leader is a dealer in hope. General Bernard Montgomery said, my definition of leadership is this, the capacity and the will to rally men and women to a common purpose and the character which inspires confidence. Former Notre Dame uh, president, Father Theodore Hesburgh, uh, said that the essence of leadership is that you have to have a vision. It's got to be a vision you articulate clearly and forcefully on every occasion. You can't blow an uncertain trumpet. Interesting perspectives. There are many different kinds of leaders. We know that. You have church leaders, you have corporate executives, community leaders, elected officials, gang leaders, organized crime leaders, and so on. But today, Chris, I want to focus on two specific kinds of leaders. And those two uh, categories of leadership are elected officials and movement leaders. Both work in the sociopolitical context and are key to an ordered and deliberative public square. But they can serve very different functions and are seen very differently by society. Now, one thing that I've noticed, Chris, today, and you may have similar experience or maybe not, 
is that we tend to think of elected leaders as more value, more valuable or at least more prestigious, you know, movement leaders. And in some instances, um, movement leadership is almost seen as less significant. Uh, it's almost seen it almost seems like movement leadership needs to be validated at some point by elected leadership or some sometimes like it's a stepping stone to elected leadership. Now, I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me, Chris, um, and asked if and when I'm going to run for office. And no matter what answer I give them, many of them don't believe that I really have no desire or no plans to run at all. Now, that doesn't mean that the desire or plan to run is bad. I know, Chris, you have been kind of on both sides of that. You've run, but you've also been in movement leadership. Um, but I've also always more so seen myself as a movement leader and sometimes for maybe selfish reasons or reasons that, that you know, that, that just fit me better. But honestly, if I'm going to be honest about this, I do think that there are some very fair reasons why elected leadership is seen as more legitimate. Right. Um, Even as somebody who sees themselves as a movement leader, I do think there's some reasons why elected leadership is seen as more legitimate in a way. For one, you're actually elected. Right. You've been voted in by the people. They've spoken on your behalf and the, the voters have chosen you to be their representative. That means something that that should come with a level of authority. Uh, I remember reading about someone who was sort of a mentor to me, a brilliant and committed and sometimes sharp tongue tongued elected uh, Atlanta elected official named Emma Darnell. Um, And there was a story I was reading where she was dressing down another leader by reminding him that no one had voted him into office. In other words, she was saying that he hadn't been formally chosen to represent the people. He hadn't earned that position through the electoral process. And I think there's something to that. I think movement leaders need to acknowledge that distinction and that difference because it, 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 it is important in cer- certain circumstances. Now, where elected leaders have been formally seated by the people, movement leaders, on the other hand, are often, whether we want to admit it or not, self-proclaimed. Half of the people on Twitter probably consider themselves to be movement leaders and act as if they have some formal leadership status. We know that those people come and that perspective comes a dime a dozen. So I do think elected leadership has an inherent legitimacy that movement leadership doesn't necessarily have. That said, I obviously don't think movement leadership is is insignificant. I think it serves a different function. And in certain contexts, Chris, uh, can even be more significant. I mean, if you look at someone like Dr. Martin Luther King, he did things and he occupied a space that I don't know that any elected leader could could fill. What gives elected leadership that inherent legitimacy also gives it some limits that movement leaders don't have. For instance, we're not tied down to a district. Elected officials Uh, kind of represent everyone or at least everyone within their district. We don't necessarily represent everyone. Now, you know, for me and for a lot of movement leaders, we are committed to to the flourishing of everyone and considerate of of other people. It's not like you don't care or you're in some zero sum competition. But we can speak into issues solely, for instance, from a religious point of view, and we can prioritize that voice in a way that 
an elected official probably couldn't. Uh, we represent a specific group of people and a specific worldview. And there's freedom in that. We're not tied down uh, to a party. Uh, I don't answer to party bosses. And I'd go so far as to say, and that's not true for every movement leader, I, but I'd go so far as to say that it's malpractice for a movement leader to be beholden to partisan commitments. Movement leadership, I think, has an independence and a flexibility that elected leadership doesn't have. Both most certainly come with very serious responsibilities. So all the things that we talked about, leadership, the power, the influence, comes with very serious responsibilities. And those responsibilities may be a little bit different. But I I do think movement leadership allows you to more narrowly speak into issues sometimes, and that's not always a bad thing. Elected officials and movement leaders do come into conflict, and sometimes that conflict is necessary. Uh, I don't think e- either sh- side should be so prideful as not to see the value of the other side, and I do think that they should be able to work together. But Chris, as we talk about this difference, or we we kind of compare and contrast movement leaders and elected officials, what do you see as those differences? What do you see as the, ba- the value of both? Of course, we have some people who have done both. I think you've been in that uh, uh, one of the spaces a little more than I have in running for elected office. But what are your thoughts on those differences and why are both necessary, if both are necessary? Yeah, I think it's really uh, important to have the conversation. I'm glad we are. Um, I've, I've actually been having this conversation in, uh, in different spaces uh, since I did run for uh, for Congress, because a lot of people do want to know um, why, you know, why did I run and, you know, what did I learn from the campaign, those types of things. Uh, and as, as you were talking, Justin, I, I, uh, I actually thought back to a, um, a, a community forum, a debate style community forum that we had uh, in the uh, congressional race. And it was toward the end and toward the end of some of those community forums got a little contentious. Uh, but one of the uh, already elected um, officials uh, made a comment in, uh, in, in, the, in the debate that she was not running to try to get a position because she already has a position. Um, and, you know, so that was that was kind of like a shot at all of us who are not elected. And we hadn't prepped this, but like just sort of on on the moment. I was like, you know, well, honestly, I think I already have uh, a higher position uh, than member of the United States Congress uh, as pastor of a local church. Um, and, and wanted to explain uh, the what I believe is a very important dynamic of, of not overvaluing the role of a United States congressperson. Because as, as a member of Congress, I said, we're running to, to represent people, uh, to serve people, um, and, and to be the servant of the people. Like, I, I don't know that being an elected office, especially legislative elected office, there's there's like this this tension between the servant of the people and the leader of the people, right? Like you're almost serving the will of the people. Uh, and so what I have uh, said, and I really thought to this a lot before I even decided to run. I think that 
there's a, a relationship between movement leadership and uh, elected leadership, or at least there should be. Because uh, like, as you said, the, the movement leader, the elected leader, both work in this kind of like social political space. And so you should be driven by a set of values uh, that you think are good and right, that you think are beneficial for the society. Uh, as a movement leader, you can devote yourself and should devote yourself to pushing forward those values. Um, I think that the reason you run for elected office is because you do have this set of uh, values that you think are good and right, not just for you, but also for the society. And you think that uh, somewhere close to a majority of the people in the jurisdiction that you plan to represent would agree with you on those uh, values and positions. And you run for office as a way to reinforce those values and secure some official capacity for the movement uh, to, to work through the official capacities of government to secure and reinforce those values, right? Um, and so what that does is it prevents a politician from becoming the type of politician uh, that I think neither one of us like to see, which is one that, that changes with the times and changes with the mood. So I don't have a real set of values my only value is elect me to office. I think the best elected representatives actually come from movements. They have a set of values. You think that there's somewhere close to a majority of people who might agree with you on those things. And so you understand that if we can coalesce those people and win an election, then we get another tool for the movement, which is a position and official capacity somewhere within the government to help reinforce uh, and strengthen uh, the impact of those values. Uh, and so that was like my logic for running for Congress is because I say, you know, I got these values. I think that there are more people in the South side of Chicago who embrace these values than is apparent in our current uh, electoral structure. So I guess without going further into that, I think that there's a real connection between um, like movement leadership and elected leadership when they are done uh, correctly. But I, I do think that it's, it's the movement that should birth the elected officials uh, and, and not let the other way around. Let me ask you this. If you were to gone from movement leadership into elected leadership, how might your po posture had to have changed? Not to say your values changed, but there may have been a change in posture. And if someone like MLK was an elected leader, what might we lose? What might not he have been able to do? Yeah, I think I think you lose a lot, right? Because as from from the movement leadership, if you, when you become an elected leader, uh, I love the, the word that you use. Your posture has to change because e even though you know the electoral process that we have um, allows and even encourages us to like to coalesce the people who agree with us on things to win elections you still have to represent the whole district, right? So you can't just represent the Democrats. You can't just represent the Republicans. You can't just represent, you know, the pro-lifers. You can't just you like, you gotta, you you gotta represent everybody. Right. And so you can't be so, so uh, forceful, I would say, um, when it comes to like putting the demand on the people. There's gotta be like much more give and take, right? Uh, when it comes to discussing issues. And again, like I don't think you have to compromise your values. I don't think you have to give up your values, but you certainly have to be willing to 
publicly platform, engage with, and consider all of the points of view versus a movement leadership, I don't think that burden is there. I think that the, the main burden of movement leadership uh, is to be very clear about the values and what we're trying to pursue and even to, you know, to put pressure on the elected officials so that in that public, uh, more, in, in that more neutral public space, the movement leaders are trying to articulate these values in forceful, persuasive uh, ways um, in order to move the culture uh, along. And in, in a certain way, again, I don't think that any elected official is supposed to be like a puppet or a tool, but there's a certain responsibility on an elected official in a, democrat, in a democracy to, um, to be sensitive to all of the people and try to, I think there's a, a way of bringing people along a lot more slowly uh, as an elected official versus a movement leader. Uh, and when you talk about someone like MLK, I don't think MLK could have been elected with his leadership style, right? Uh, when you go back, you know, obviously today, everybody loves Martin Luther King. Um, but in his day, uh, I don't think his, um, you know, his, his favorables were, you know, sort of where somebody, where they you wanted to be for somebody to suggest that you run for office. Uh, and had he gotten elected, I think there's a certain element of the prophetic edge that would necessarily have to come off. And if it didn't, then you wouldn't be elected real long. So, you know. Yeah, I, I, it's almost a feeling like you don't have to kind of like people please. And, and that's not to say it's done even to the loss of integrity, but just even the softening the edge sometimes that really needed to be there. One of the main things I think movement leaders do and are called to do in many instances, especially Christian ones, is hold the elected officials accountable. Right. So whereas I say, you know, I, I see the legitimacy question and I, and I get that I, I you know, I, um, it's important for movement leaders not to be prideful about that. But there is a responsibility to press and to challenge uh, those elected officials. But but tell me this. Do you do you hear me on the legitimacy legitimacy side of that and kind of the difference and why one might be held um, held up differently than the other based on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear you. I, I don't know that I would um, call it like more legitimate. Like, and I think people might perceive it as more legitimate. What I've tried to express to people is that I think it's official, right? Like it's, it's more official because you can officially manipulate the official um, arms and capacities of the government, right? Uh, but I think that you actually have to see the connection of your movement leadership to your elected leadership. Uh, in order to do that effectively, because I'm, I'm here based on the values that I hold. I ran for office based on the fact that I believe that there's a large group of people inside of this jurisdiction who are willing to stand with me on these values. And so the movement needed a person to embody those values in an election so that all the people who embrace those values could actually use their vote. The, in, in the proper way. If at some point, I believe, and this is somebody who, as, as somebody who just ran for office, I think it is very, very important that if you come to the point in your movement participation that you recognize that this movement is not currently like electorally popular, 
you don't shift your values, but you may have to shift your focus because you may need to be more um, missional and evangelistic in the movement work right now, where the work is not so much getting elected. The work is getting in with the people, pointing people to truth, you know, maybe people who embrace these values, organizing them better and raising their level of kind of courage and confidence and zeal so that they bring those values more fervently to the public space. Like that's the work of movement building. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, I, I think that if we allow too much disconnect to, to exist between elected leaders and, and movement participation, then we produce too many elected officials who are not really part of a movement. They're just in it for their own, you know, sort of self-aggrandizement. And, and that's the worst case scenario. Like I'd rather have an elected official who belongs to a movement that I disagree with than, but actually embraces those values uh, than one that is really just there because they believe very deeply in their own self, you know, and, and, and their sort of ability to contribute in some magical way. Yeah, for sure. And, and when I talk about legitimacy, that's not to say that no movement leaders are legitimate, but it's easy. It's more easy. It's I'm talking about the inherent legitimacy. So it's easier to say you're something that you're not when you're a movement leader. Right. If you're an elected official, to some extent, you already are what you're saying you are. Right. Um, and, and so that's kind of what I was getting at there. But it, it, it's it's a, it's an interesting back and forth. I mean, it's an interesting dynamic that we just need to think about one what does mean leadership mean what are the different kinds of leaders what roles do they play and what are those and what are those differences the other thing i would say is that a lot of elected officials are representatives but they're not leaders um you know even you know one thing that came up with with this vote a lot of people vote on the party line, not because they like the person they're voting for, especially when it comes to kind of legislative positions, is that they know they're going to fall in line. It, it, it's that they know, OK, if I vote for this person, I don't really like them, but it gives Republicans or Democrats one more vote and they need the majority. And I think that's to some extent somewhat practical. Right. I don't I don't necessarily agree. I think character matters, who you're voting for matters. But from a practical point of view, some people are saying, yeah, that's great, but he's just going to vote. I mean, if we look at the Senate races, we like a lot of different legislative races. These folks pretty much just vote with their party. And so to some extent, it's plug and play because you don't see the leadership from a lot of elected officials that they should be, you know, that maybe they should be having. So something else to think about. Yeah. And I, I would just encourage folks you know, on that vein of legitimacy, because like it's certainly like you have that legitimacy, but when you attach it to movement work, you can analyze that legitimacy a little bit more. Like we, we have, like sometimes you have folks who like they got in this, in the position, but from a movement perspective, we also have to analyze how they got like into that position. Was there a movement of people that delivered you there? Or was it the like some combination of like party influence with low voter turnout? You know, the, the election that I just ran in, in the first congressional district, we had 16% voter participation. So, and, and the person who won the election got less than a third of the vote. So you get less than a third of 16% of the registered voters in the congressional district. Like legitimate, yes, you won the election, 
but it's hardly a mandate. It's hardly leadership. Like it's um, and and it's something for those of us who who work in movements to to think about and constantly remind ourselves of that that legitimacy that an elected leader might have by virtue of the fact that they have that they did win an election and they are in that office. It's it's official, but we should constantly be lifting the hood and see how, I guess I would say culturally and socially legitimate because mm-hmm. um, it's officially legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly you won the election. You are in the office. That's your, that's your yeah. office. Your name is on the door. Here, but here's another thought though. Here's another, another thought. Though. I think one, cause I was talking about posture and one of the things that I've been against for a long time, especially when in executive office is putting activists in office. So a lot of people won't vote for an executive that wasn't activist because if they don't know how to actually govern, a lot of activists, or you could call them movement leaders, do not know how to govern, right? It's one thing to see something wrong and speak up on it, and that's needed, but sometimes they don't have a government. And I was actually reading from last week an article about South Fulton, uh, which is a a city here in Atlanta, uh, where the guy calls himself an elected activist. And if you read what's going on in that city, you'll probably see why he before he came into office, he made every single city council person mad at him to where he doesn't have one vote on the city council. Tons of I mean, it's an inter- I can't remember the title of the article, but very interesting article. We can talk and then we're, we're going over on this segment. I think it's a really good segment. Very quickly. Talk about why you might not want an activist to be in office uh, from a practical and governing standpoint. Yeah, I mean, so especially at the municipal level, I, I think that a lot of municipal leaders miss the fact that your job is actually not activism and really not even all too much policy, right? It's administration, right? Uh, I, I playfully say that the role of the mayor and the alderman is to hustle garbage cans, right? Make sure everybody's got garbage cans and that the street lights come on. Um, and, if, and, and so that takes executive capacity. And so sometimes which I have to say is the case here in, in, in my beloved Chicago, you get somebody in executive office who's never run an institution. Um, and so they're expert at making arguments, but when running institutions is very different. You know, you got to get people motivated and align systems and structures. And it's just a very, very different discipline. Uh, and if you haven't done that at all at any level, and then you go into having to run this really big bureaucracy, even if your heart is right and the values that you want to pursue, people might agree with, you don't have the skill set to actually operationalize uh, any of what you're talking about because yeah, you I mean, mostly made your life just talking about it. It's irresponsible as the executive to just go around starting fires. Right. Like an activist can go around starting fires. Sometimes that's irresponsible, too. But sometimes it's necessary for an executive just to go around starting fires and uh, shooting at people is very irresponsible, especially if it puts you in a position where you can't get anything done because you had to run off at the mouth. And and, and now you put your city in a really bad position. So, man, we could talk about this for a long time. I think it's I think it's an important subject where we ran out of time on this segment, but we will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. 
Well, Chris, I know you you've you've been looking at this a, a little bit. Um, in a couple of interviews over the past week, uh, Vice Pro- President uh, Kamala Harris has declared that the U.S. border was secure. Um, now, whether you're a supporter of hers or not, I do think it's hard to say that the statistics support such an assertion. Uh, in fact, according to Newsweek, since Biden ended Trump's remain in Mexico policy, and, and believe me, this isn't a... Uh, you know, anybody who's been listening to this podcast knows we weren't very supportive of how Trump had handled the border either. Uh, but Newsweek was saying that since Biden ended Trump's remain in Mexico policy, America has experienced 379 percent increase in illegal immigrant encounters. The article goes on to say that Americans of all political stripes are paying attention to what's going on at the border and what they see are record record levels of illicit border crossings and overflowing detention centers. Uh, There's been an increase in illegal drugs crossing the border. Some field offices have seen an 11 fold increase in drug seizures, especially of fentanyl. Now, we know fentanyl overdoses are the leading cause of death for Americans between the ages of 18 and 45. I'm going to say that again. Fentanyl is the overdoses from fentanyl is the leading cause of death for Americans between the ages of 18 and 45. Only about 35 percent of Americans agree with Biden's handling of the border. Things on the border are really bad. But up until recently, very recently, within the last couple of weeks, people haven't mostly been focused on that. They've mostly been focused on the economy and abortion. But this immigration crisis jumped back into the top of the conversation when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis flew about 50 or so immigrants to Martha's Vineyard to prove a point. Now, before we get into this, I want to say this. Without a doubt in my mind, this was a political stunt. I don't think anybody in good faith can argue that this wasn't a political stunt. And I personally think it was unethical and quite possibly immoral to do something like this. You you don't use the lives of suffering people, any people, of suffering people especially, to make a political point, to feed into the polarization and the back and forth between red states and blue states and red leaders and blue leaders. I think that was shameful. I think it should be condemned. I think nothing about it should be celebrated. And we all need to think about how we treat actions like that, because that was not cool at all. Full stop, point blank, period. Now, with that said, even though this was a political stunt, I don't know that we have to ignore the fact that many localities who were calling themselves sanctuary cities showed themselves to have no intention on being a refuge for anybody, no preparation for being a refuge for anybody. It was all cap. It was all virtue signaling. It's very easy to talk about how mean Texas Republicans and Arizona Republicans are from a distance, but then you scream bloody murder immediately when a small fraction of the immigrants going into those states and going into those border towns are sent to your jurisdiction. I think 
some hypocrisy was exposed here. Now, again, it wasn't right. I don't support what was done, but you have folks who called themselves sanctuary. So you're apparently just out of trying to show their virtue within a couple weeks talking about, well, we're not, we're not a border city. We're not ready for this. Well, you think border cities want to sit there and put all the, you know, all this money into kind of and kind of doing the same things that you're being asked to do today? Of course not. So the answer certainly is that we don't treat immigrants uh, humanely. That's not the question. But if you're going to come at somebody else and try to score political points, you should be ready to do something something similar yourself. And so I did. I do think it exposed a level of hypocrisy because many of these, you know. Uh, uh, Democratic mayors and governors and so on did not want to take care of that either, did not want to provide the resources or make the changes uh, or, or or put it in their budget to support the people they said, the rhetoric said that they wanted to support. Now, I'm going to say what one of the things, Chris, that I know partisans hate to hear, and I don't necessarily like to say it, but I know sometimes, not all the time, sometimes it's necessary. And I'm going to say both sides because both sides, both parties are doing very poorly when it comes to immigration. We should have had comprehensive immigration reform years ago, but those who stuck their necks out to try to get that done are still paying the price for doing that. Um, is sending immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, which I think is bad and wrong, point blank, is that worse than rhetoric that encourages them to come? You be the judge of that. I don't know that, you know, you can go either way. But I think we can say that both sides, both parties have been irresponsible in this immigration conversation. How have you looked at the recent conversation about immigration, uh, uh, Chris? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just reminded me of how heartbreaking this issue has been over. I mean, for me personally, I'm sure it's been more than than this, but for me personally, over a decade at this point, um, because you are, if you step back from it for a moment, I guess where it came for me in time, you really see human beings, uh, you know, who really do bear the image of God. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's first off a good reminder that you don't have to be born in the United States to bear the image of God. Um, you, you, as a human being, you bear the image of God, um, and people have to be under some tremendous distress to go through uh, the things that people go through trying to come to the United States uh, illegally. And we have just not had uh, enough good faith efforts over a long period of time to actually deal with this very complex and um, and sort of like. Uh, it's a very difficult issue at a heart level um, if you actually deal with the humanity of it. Uh, and so and so it is a hard thing, um, but we haven't had enough good faith efforts to deal with it. And now as our culture and our, or at least our political culture uh, has transitioned into this like all out warfare between, you know, these, you know, uh, two sort of like binary sides. And to see how this issue, which is something that, you know, has has been like a, a heart, a sore spot for me. I, I don't want to 
uh, pretend that I'm like out there working on immigration policy every day. Uh, but it's certainly one of those things that has been like a real sore spot for me over a long period of time. And then to see how it has been just used, you know, in this in this election moment, it's just been been very, very difficult. And it, it caused me back to the fact that this is one of those issues where you really, really, really need the church. Um, like this, this is one of those issues where I do think there's enough theological, ethical, um, and maybe even practical common ground within the church uh, where people, from people who come from different political spaces, but are inside of the same church of Jesus Christ, um, could actually come together and provide some meaningful leadership uh, on this issue. And and this, this latest uh, sort of episode, I think, just highlights that point um, that is so badly needed. Uh, but I also think it's so very possible if we could just find the like uh, the guts and the grace to actually do it. Specifically, what do you, what are your thoughts on what DeSantis did and the unwillingness of a lot of Democrats to actually take in the people they said they were going to take in? Yeah, I mean, like you you said it right. Like this was a political stunt. Uh, remind us that Florida is not a border state. Um, That's why I said Texas and Arizona is not, it's not a border state. <laughs> Although they do get a lot of immigrants, but it's not the Mexico border isn't an issue. Isn't that the same issue for them? You know, so it, it, I mean, this 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 was politics. But then as somebody who lives in a sanctuary city, this has been one of my uh, ongoing responses. And I know it's hard for me come because I, I exist uh, in a lot of Democratic spaces. And I really do believe in. Uh, a, a, uh, a an immigration reform that is responsible but has a heart of compassion. Um, but when you talk about a sanctuary city, I've always said, you know, Chicago, we can't create a sanctuary for the people who reside here. How are we going to create a sanctuary for people coming in? Uh, and so, you know, we are one of the cities that actually had uh, the buses come to the city. Uh, and it wasn't a week and a half before the mayor and the governor were appealing to the federal government for additional resources, right? Because that's kind of what it takes. And, and so it, it just highlights the, the complexity of the problem. You, you cannot create a sanctuary um, for large numbers of people without the resources and a plan to do so. And, and I think those of us who are coming from a... Um, a space of like a, a sort of like compassion driven, responsible immigration reform really is just about having those two things, right? We, we need a, a plan and we need the resources and our resources can't underserve our plan, right? That's what you have in the sanctuary cities. You got a plan or at least a, 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 a rhetoric that you don't have the resources to, to actually commit to. Uh, so you can't have a plan or rhetoric that outpaces your resources. Um, but you can't not have a plan. And I, I think that's what we see, what I see in this. Like you, you certainly see a guy trying to win, uh, you know, do, do a political stunt to try to change the narrative uh, in a very important election that's coming up. I think it was wrong. I, I think it was, you know, all, all, all the stuff that you said, you, you hit that very well. It's very, very bad form in my view. Um but the reason he did it is because he did know that it would expose and highlight some hypocrisy 
on the other side. Uh, and so if, if we start working toward a real solution, we take away the some of the opportunity for the kind of political gamesmanship that folks are trying to play with the lives of human people. And I think uh, that's like the big thing for me is that like these are these are people who bear the image. Of and, God. and it shows that politicians just running their mouths for partisan to score partisan points has an impact. Like it's re- like for me to be the mayor of uh, Chicago and to say, man, look how terrible Trump and those Republicans are. We want to take everybody. Everybody come here. Yeah. Well, it sounds good. You're going to get, you know, you're going to get your little viral moment. But your your plan, as you said, it has to match your rhetoric. Your your rhetoric has to match the reality of what's going on. And you made no preparations to get ready for this. You, I mean, literally screaming bloody murder. Please, we can't do this. We can't do this. What do you think when you were making your comments? What do you think border towns are saying? That's what they're saying. Even if I'm in a border town, I'm not trying to give 45% of my budget over to something that's not what I got elected to do. Now, again, we need comprehensive immigration reform that is humane, that allows people to go through a process to get here, that doesn't have people rushing to the border with the hopes of get, getting in when that really shouldn't be, you know, that really shouldn't be the, the hope. So, you know, I know a lot of folks when it comes to this issue and other really hot button issues, they expect us to jump to one side or the other because the other side is so bad. I acknowledge how bad what Rod, what uh, Ron DeSantis did was. I also acknowledge how bad it is to say that the border is secure or to or to say that we can bring all these people in. And within a couple of weeks, you you screaming and, don't, and can't do it. Neither of those are responsible. And really, they're reflections, microcosms of our immigration policy as a whole and how it's been broken for, for so long. So yeah. um, anything else? Been been for a long time, uh, our immigration policy has been broken for a long time and our political discourse is really broken right now because you feel as the mayor of Chicago illegitimate just to stand up and say, we have a very difficult problem at the border as the mayor of this city, you know, I'm definitely willing to contribute whatever resources we can to help solve the problem, right? Like to me, like that's actually, that's a good and decent thing to say, but like in in the culture that we have, like you can't say that. You got to be like all in, sanctuary city, send everybody here, all that stuff. And I think it's irresponsible. And here's the other impact of this. It has changed the conversation. I mean, you heard a lot about Dobbs, abortion, Economy is still going to be up there, but it almost supplanted abortion, at least. And it could change back, mm-hmm. but it changed the conversation about what, you know, what stories we're hearing from, you know, mainstream media and all that. Now, I would imagine some folks are going to try to switch it back, but it's not always, always that easy. And so it's brought up an issue, at least for Democrats, that's not going to be in their favor when they were hoping to get a lot of uh, a lot of burn, so to speak, out of uh, the abortion conversation. Yeah, it was. We're going so much over on, on all these segments, but it was actually, it was, it was very wrong, but it was smart politically because you you took the border issue and you put it in Chicago. I can tell you as somebody who lives in the border Chicago, to Chicago, brought the border to D.C. Yeah, yeah. You don't talk about the border in Chicago until now, and people who were all hyped up, you know, about abortion and other issues like that on on the left. You know, when when you're like a a, a lakefront liberal, as, as we call them here, you know, the wealthy folk who live on the lakefront in, in Chicago, you know, you can be all hopped up about abortion. But then when, when you find out that 
the mayor is housing, you know, 300 immigrants in a hotel down the street from your house. That changes the dynamic. I think it's all kind of like really bad thinking that needs to be worked through from Ron DeSantis to the Lakefront Liberals. A lot of folks need to have a whole lot of conversations. But just from a political perspective, you know, it was it was it was a smart political move, uh, albeit a very kind of dastardly thing to do. Yeah, uh, based on the terms of how politics is done in America right now, that was a very smart move. Not one we would recommend, though. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The And Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend, Christopher Butler. This next story is, uh, I guess, interesting is one one way to put it. Um, a Los Angeles public school district posted a video on Instagram condemning negative attitudes towards junk food and claiming that diet culture is based on oppression. The video urges children to eat without guilt. Basically, it says that, that all food is good unless it's spoiled or, po- or poisoned. And what, what this is called is food neutrality, right? The new, a new word, food neutrality. Basically, we shouldn't think of certain foods as good or bad. As long as they're, you know, as long as they don't kill us immediately, I guess, uh, then they are, they should be good. It also talked about diet culture being based on oppression. Now, um, diet culture might be based on vanity, there may be some bad things that go with diet culture. We should be able to critique diet culture. But saying it's based on oppression and using that as a justification not to realize that junk food is bad for you and act like eating uh, some candy is the same thing as eating some broccoli seems pretty ridiculous to me. Like, we should be able to critique diet culture without acting like all stigmas are oppressive. Um, but here's the worst part. Someone found out that the lady who was in the video saying all these things actually works for Mondelez International, which is one of the world's largest snack companies. So she's trying to dismantle the stigma against junk food to sell more Twinkies and candy bars to our children. Guys, I, I hope you see how this mindless rhetoric 
can be really manipulative. This lady is using what some would call kind of woke vocabulary, right? To help the junk food industry, the snack industry. And we have, and and and, and I'll be honest with you, Chris, this really shouldn't be news. This really would, that video within itself would not be news, should be not news. The only reason that it's news is you have a large public school district posting it and going along with it like it makes sense. Go ahead, Chris. I'll, I'll let you speak into it, bro. Hey, it is. Uh, it's 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 really really insane. I will say, you know, first off, nobody in the world wishes that what this video is saying were true more than I do. Um, <laughs> like, I I have a like a, a really bad sweet tooth that you know is one of the great holiness struggles of my life um and so i i I would love it if it were true that eating you know a an ice cream sundae was no different from eating a salad like i really wish that were true it is just simply not and this is just a another example of us allowing our devotion to ideology to outpace our willingness to like just stop and apply basic rules of logic um you know and and i'll say just one other thing uh diet culture may not be based on oppression it's probably rooted in some oppression because of the stuff that we have going on in our food industry that makes access to healthy food uh structurally difficult um for certain people in certain places but as i always say to my church members uh, if you mix a truth with a lie, it's a lie. So just because there's oppression in, in food culture doesn't mean. Oh, yeah, there's definitely oppression in food culture. I don't know how directly tied to that that is to the diet culture. But based on the logic that we're getting from this video, when you have an area that's a food desert and they still have junk food around the corner, it's not a food desert. No, and, and you that's can why get a bag of chips. At the local store, you can get, you know, any kind of Twinkies with the sprinkles or anything coming out of them. You no longer have a food desert. What's the difference? Hey, let them eat cake is is basically what you get out of this whole conversation. Uh, I I just, again, this shouldn't be worth talking about. This should be like, okay, that's some some crazy person, blah, blah, blah. You have a school district that's pushing this stuff. And if you look at where some of this rhetoric and where that culture of everything is oppressive, Anything that makes me feel a certain way, if if Chris sees me eating a bunch of stuff he knows I shouldn't eat, for him to look at me like, ah, you just oppress me. What do you, you know? What I'm saying like we don't need we don't need to pretend like eating junk food is good for you. No, even I, if it makes somebody temporarily for two minutes feel better. Yeah, and like especially like if I'm a kid in high school, and I know because like I was a kid in high school with a bad sweet tooth. Like I needed my ROTC instructors and coaches. To be like, dude, you can't eat that stuff, right? If if they are now bound up by the school district where they have to say that, you know, it's okay. We are just in a bad spot, man. We're in trouble, man. <laughs> Food neutrality. But the biggest thing, once again, not only the, the foolishness of the logic behind it, but the fact that she's working with snack companies. <laughs> 
And this this happens on so many different levels, you know, uh, even when it comes to some of these big corporations and their announcements about abortion. Well, guess what? They don't want to have to take care. They don't want you to have to go out on leave. It's much cheaper for for them for you to have an abortion. You might want to think about that before you start listening to these corporations and all that and where what stances they take on some of these moral issues. Yeah, we're dead the leadership segment. We'll have to do on comparing movement leadership to corporate leadership next time. Corporate leadership. Corporate leadership is one we need to talk about, too. Man, I enjoyed this conversation. I hope y'all did, too. As always, thank all of you who supporting what we do. Uh, we need you. Spread the word. Do whatever you can. This is a podcast that's trying to speak to you in a way that nobody else is. And so we're going to try to keep it biblical. We're going to try to keep it thoughtful. As always, and campaign, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp. Well, I'll let you. I said, kingdom, come through me, rest in me, kingdom. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.